question. Let me begin with a question, if I may. What would you do, and I've been wrestling with this, I have to admit to you over the last couple of weeks, it's really kind of exposed me a little bit. What would you do if, say, one day you were reading the Word of God and that teaching of Scripture required you to rethink what it is that you believed? And then, even more so, required you to actually change the way that you live. I, I've been asking that question of myself. It's a very interesting diagnostic question. And I, I won't ask you to put your hands up this morning, but if I were to ask at least rhetorically the question, when was the last time you literally changed something in your life because of your encounter with the Word of God? Now, beyond, beyond the day you realized that you were dead in your sins and trespasses and surrendered to the Lord, becoming a child of God, since that time, what changes have transpired in your life as a direct result of an encounter with the Word of God? And to extend the question, would you be open to being changed at your age, at your stage of life, should the clarity of Scripture so pierce your heart that you realize, I can't keep doing that. And it might be something that you're not even aware of because that's just who you are. That's just the way it is. And then all of a sudden, that passage that you've read a dozen or more times pierces you in a way that it has not heretofore. Would you adapt your life to the Word, or would you adapt the Word to your life? Passively or aggressively? Because I doubt there's anybody sitting in this room right now that said, oh yeah, I read that in the Scriptures, but you know what? I ain't obeying that word, so I'm going to dance around that passage, or I'm going to, I'm going to reduce the nature of that which Scripture is calling me to change, and I'm going to mm, just kind of squeeze by because God and I have this deal. Or I know the person that sits on the other side of the room on Sunday has the same problem that I do, and they're way worse than I am, so mm, not that bad. We, we do that, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. We, we, do, we make deals. Jesus really couldn't have meant that. I mean, the Bible doesn't really expect me to do that. I mean, you know, it's, it's 2,000 years old. I love reading the Word, and I love being encouraged by it, but if it gets too close, there's a growing movement. There's a growing movement within Christianity that set in motion, due in part to the stresses of the coronavirus, where people are reconsidering what they believe. It, it, it's, it's a movement that's being called deconstructing Christianity. It's one of those things that uh, I come across in my research as one who takes his pastoral calling very seriously because I need to be out ahead of some of these things so that by the time they get into this room, I'm already there. And I've at least shared some of this with the elders um, so that they're there with me as well. We'll be doing this more and more and more so that we, the gatekeepers of the church, 
are prepared for somebody coming up to us and say, hey, I've got a neighbor, or hey, I've got a coworker, or I saw online that there's this stuff going on that people are deconstructing their faith, deconstructing Christianity because of all of the stresses politically and all of the stresses surrounding the virus. People are beginning to rethink, gee, do I really need to be in a building to be a Christian? Hey, my service is now live streamed. Sunday morning at 10.30, not very convenient for me, especially when I'm out late Saturday night. So you know what? I'm going to queue it up Monday night. That's better for me. Uh, now, I don't care when you watch. Just watch. And not even so much watch, but engage. And I understand there are circumstances that, that dictate decisions that we must make, but that's part of the movement that's going on. It's now become this consumer orientation where, you know what, that's an inconvenient time for me. I don't really like those people, so I'm going to hold my YouTube uh, account. I'm going to hold it over here, and then when it's convenient for me, that's when I'll bring it up and I'll listen to what he may have to say. It's happening. It's happening around us right now, which is why I'm extraordinarily blessed that we had to scramble this morning to bring in a couple more chairs because we, had, we have more people. This is not happening everywhere. It's pretty darn exciting, truth be told. Unfortunately, as you can very easily imagine along these lines, there are a lot of babies that are being thrown out with a lot of bathwater. And I struggle for Orthodox Christianity right now and for your souls, truth be told. All this said, all that said, there is much to be gained don't get me wrong, there's much to be gained by self-examination. It's not that we shouldn't look in, in, inward. It's not that we shouldn't ask ourselves the question, like, what is my life really all about? Where am I going? What is this pressure doing to me? I mean, the scriptures are complete with statements like that. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. He's talking to believers. A word to Christians, examine yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. That's Paul. Peter, 2 Peter 1.10, says, make your calling and election sure. Again, he's writing to believers. Don't cruise. If you're cruising, you're losing. C.S. Lewis used to say there's only two ways to go, to go in the Christian life. You're either going forward or you're going backward. The idea that there's neutrality is a myth. If you're not pressing on with the Lord, you're falling behind and you're in danger. Make your calling and election sure. So there's Peter, there's Paul and Peter, John. John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. My, my, my. If the church took that seriously in this, in, over these past year, year and a half, rather than just assuming that somebody who says, I'm a Christian and they have a, they have a platform and are prophesying certain things going on, John says, whoa, test every spirit, because not every spirit is from the Lord. And if you test those spirits and find them to be false, if they're making prophecies that X, Y, and Z are going to happen, and it doesn't, that's a false prophet, and they should be rejected. Unless, of course, they repent. But I haven't seen much in the way of repentance from these so-called prophets and prophetesses who are telling Christians what's going to go down. In the context of today's passage in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that we are to live in a particular way as a result of a particular truth. Now, you, can, you can say that just about 
for all of the scriptures. But here Paul zeroes in on, on a couple of things. That we, you and, you and me, are to live in a particular way as a result of a particular truth. If you look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 13, I just want to show you the particular truth. And then we'll talk about the particular way in the, in the verses this morning. So I'm going to get a little ahead of ourselves in verse 11. 13, 11 says, Beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So that's, that's the particular truth. What Paul is saying, not only here, but in all of his writings, what he's saying is, you know the time. We're in the end times. And I know that's sensational sounding language, but it's the biblical reality that, as I say regularly in this pulpit, when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, the clock began. And so we are still in the end times. But as is obviously the truth, with every passing day, we're another day closer. But what Paul is saying is that to the Christians in Rome, you know the time. You know that Jesus is coming back. And so you ought to live as though he were coming back. The day your salvation is finally fulfilled. We are saved. We are being saved. We shall be finally saved at the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's a big deal. That's the banner that really flies over all of your life. And he's saying to the Christians, you know this. You know what the time is. That your salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, that's the particular truth that Paul waves over our head this morning. And now, to zero in on our passage this morning, this is the particular way in which we are to live in light of this truth. Okay, so I've got two simple points for you this morning. It's that particular way, and then the reason for that. Okay, and I'll give you that. And it's right out of verses 8, 9, and 10. Very simple outline. I urge you to follow it. And I also urge you to understand here, because we Christians do a really good job of individualizing the faith. I need to get saved from my sin. Jesus saved me from my sin so that I can go to heaven. I encounter that all the time in the kids in school. Tell me, tell me about your faith. Tell me what's going on. Well, I know I'm a sinner and Jesus will save me and I'll go to heaven. Okay, what are you doing now? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? I'm, I'm just living my life. My ticket's punched. I don't, do I need to change? Is there something else that needs to go on? Your salvation is part of a much larger narrative in the scriptures. God is at work making all things new. And part of making all things new, Romans 8, right? Part of making all things new is making you new. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You're part of a much grand, a much larger narrative of God redeeming all of the universe. And so we are to see that, that our, in, uh, that our individual salvation is not so that we can rest comfortably in the den with larger pillows, no, our individual salvation, our individual reclamation process is so that we can get busy for God in the full reconciling of the creation. So here's the particular way that we are to live and the reason for it. Let's look at verse 8, the very first part of verse 8. I received uh, my visa bill this week. I, I actually brought it with me. I'm not going to show it in front of the camera in case anybody takes a freeze frame and expands and finds my credit number and runs me out of town. It's one of, the, one of life's great feelings to get your 
to get your visa bill and to see on the line that says amount due, zero. It's a collective groan in the room. It's one of life's great feelings to see a zero on the amount due line. One bill, however, that always arrives with the amount due is the bill of love. Let me show you where I get that. Owe no one, this is the very first part of verse 8 of Romans chapter 13, owe no one anything except to love each other. So here's Paul, he's, he's dovetailing this now, right? He's coming out of 13.7 that just said, pay your taxes, pay your bills, keep short accounts. And now Paul pivots and says, owe no one anything except the debt to love. So pay your bills, but you'll never pay the debt of love that God calls you to as a result of his love. So Romans 13, 8, first part, owe no one anything except to love each other. Paul's not an economist. He knows enough, however, to tell us that we need to keep our shorts, our counts short when it comes to paying our taxes and bills. But when it comes to love, Paul pivots here. It's different. Paul teaches us that loving each other is never, is never paid in full. Woe unto the husband, woe unto the wife who looks at their spouse and says, you know what? I've loved you enough. From this point on, just draw on my account of all of the love that I've given to you over the past 36 years. Deal? I, I'm not even going to look at Mrs. Ronsley right now because there's probably a little stream of smoke coming out of her ears. No, she would rightly say to me, no, honey, you owe me. And she'd be right. But you know what? <laughs> I could say the same thing to her. But watch this now because I can say that to you. And you can say that to me. See, that account never gets paid in full. Paul recognizes this in, in 1.14. In Romans 1.14, he says this, talking about the gospel. This is long ago. Remember this? Long ago, Romans chapter 1. I am under obligation. The language is the same word. It's literally, I am indebted to. I am indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul recognizes that as a result of his call, he is indebted to the people to whom he is preaching. Same with me right here, right now. Every week, I stand in front of you, indebted to you. I owe you an act of love through the proclamation of the word of God. It would be unloving for me to teach you heresy. It would be unloving for me to do anything other than to point you to the word of God and say, this is the way. I am faithfully discharging my debt of love to you. Remember what Paul has already taught us in the larger context of Romans 12 and 13. In Romans 12, 9, he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. And then in verses 19 to 21 of Romans 12, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Doesn't use the word love, but that's very clear, an act of love even towards one's enemy. This is all echoing, as you know, as I pointed out to you, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 43 and following, where he, taught, where he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus said, whoa, in the kingdom, love your neighbor and your enemy. That's what he says. Love, as you hear regularly defined in this pulpit, is the selfless sacrifice on behalf of the other. That's why he says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. Yes, he's talking about within the community, but he's also going to expand this to talk about those who are outside the community as well. Love, by definition, is self-sacrifice with a view toward the other. So let me give you the reason. That's the first point, the particular way. What should I do? I should love I should owe no one anything except to love each other. And now, why should I do it? And this, this, he, this he picks up in the second half of verse 8. For the love, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is a glorious reason that Paul now gives for obedience to this particular way. The reason why we ought to love our neighbors as ourselves is because loving one another fulfills the law. This is an enormous statement. I mean, it's a series of sermons here. Uh, on this very topic, but we won't get into it all of it right now. But the question that immediately arises isn't, oh, wait a minute, is that works righteousness? Is it possible to fulfill the law by my works? What's, I mean, what's going on here? If I love, if I love you, if I love my wife, if I love my neighbor to the very best of my ability, does that mean that's in and of itself going to be enough? I had a conversation with somebody just the other day who was, I didn't ask, but conversation ensued. And I got the whole reason why this person was worthy of going to heaven. And as many of you have heard, one of the things that the person says to me, I'm basically a good person. Now, those of us who have been around the Christian block for, for a while, we chuckle at that. We should not chuckle at that. Because a lot of people on Staten Island, a lot of people in your life, think they're going to get a ticket punch because, well, they're basically not a bad person. doesn't sound bad, except nowhere in the Bible is that stated as the way to go. Didn't Paul say earlier in Romans, Romans 6.14, that you're not under law, but under grace? Didn't Paul earlier in Romans 7.4 say also, you've died to the law through the body of Christ? Didn't Paul also early in Romans, in Romans 8, chapters Chapter 8, verses 2 and 4. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? What's going on? If the law has been fulfilled, and this is what Jesus said, right? Matthew 5, 17, well-known passage. Uh, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So if Jesus has fulfilled it, and I'm in Jesus... And that then means that I fulfilled the law. What's Paul talking about? If my love of my neighbor is a singular statement about fulfilling the law. Loving one another, it seems to me, therefore, is the supreme evidence of these realities being true in your life. 
make sure you hear that. Loving one another selflessly like that, desiring their good, is a strong, do I dare say supreme, evidence of these realities I just spoke of in Romans 6, 7, and 8 being true in your life. Listen to me now. Yes, you are to work. You are to love. But not so as to achieve God's righteousness, but instead to show proof of it in your life. I'll say it again. You work, we labor, we love, not to earn God's righteousness, but to bear fruit that God's righteousness is in our lives. You reverse that and you lose all of the gospel. Because then you have legalism, then you have works righteousness, then you have, I'm working my way to heaven, which is a fool's errand because you'll never be good enough. Which is why salvation is outside of you. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to your account that now in your account, you now spend it. You see how that works? So now you're free to work knowing that you've been made righteous and he gets the glory. And that's the way the Christian gospel works. Yes, we are to work, to love, but not so as to achieve God's righteousness, but instead to show proof of it in your life. Or another way to say it, and I quote a writer on this topic right now. What a beautiful sentence this is. In Romans 8, Christ fulfills the law for us. In Romans 13, Christ, the, Christ fulfills the law through us. Isn't that good stuff? Romans 8, he fulfills the law for us. That's freedom. In Romans 13, now we're, now we're getting to work. In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Christ now fulfills the law through us. So these acts of neighbor love is the spirit of Christ working through us. It's his righteousness working through us so that we're free. I don't have to worry about what my neighbor thinks about me. I don't have to, I don't have to size up my neighbor and say, no, you need to be more like me in order to do this. That's what the Good Samaritan parable is all about. And in its day, the parable of the Good Samaritan was radical. Because the people you thought would have taken care of this body skirt over to the other side. And the Samaritan, <gasps> think about a people group that you loathe right now. And insert them in that parable, and that's how the parable works. The persons that you cannot stand. Work with me here now. Work with me, particularly in this high-pitched day in which we live. The people that you have talked about, the people that you struggle with, these are the people that Jesus calls us to because his righteousness is working its way through us. It's easy to love somebody who loves you. Love somebody that you can't stand. Maybe he's even a threat to you. Certainly doesn't think like you, doesn't look like you, 
This is radical stuff, brothers and sisters. This is Paul drinking deeply from the wells of Jesus. This is Pastor Mark drinking deeply from the, from the wells of Paul, who's, who's drank deeply from the wells of Jesus, so that you drink not just from my wells, but from Paul's and Jesus' wells as well. It's a lot of well. <laughs> In verse 9, Paul puts his Bible together and he roots for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law in the Old Testament. In verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, any other commandment summed up in this one word, in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul puts his Bible together and he says, look, saints in first century Rome, look, saints in 21st century Staten Island. I'm not pulling this out of the air willy-nilly. The Ten Commandments are in two places in the Old Testament. You should know this right off the top of your head. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. That's where the Ten Commandments are listed for us. And Paul's working the back half of the ten here. He leaves one out but he's working the back half of it right here, right now. The commandments, not, not to commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, any other commandment summed up in this one word. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. You want to talk about a mountain verse in the New Testament. We read Psalm 110, and I told you how big that was this morning. Leviticus 19.18 is all over the New Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the interesting thing about the immediate context of Leviticus 19, 18. You know what the verse, you know what the verse says? It sounds like this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Hmm. You suppose Paul had that open when he was writing the end of Romans 12? Because that's basically what is going on there. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Now here's the pivot. But instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it's grounded in the character of God because Yahweh then says, I am the Lord. Like you needed more, right? Love your neighbor as yourself because I am the Lord, says Yahweh. So where do we go from here? If if the particular way of living is to selflessly love our neighbor, grounded in the scriptures, both testaments, and the reason why we should do that is because it fulfills the law. This is what one writer says. This is the single, all-encompassing, earthly good to which we are called. It is how we share in and manifest the messianic justice of God in the world. There's no end to this word. I was struck by those words this week. You sit with love your neighbor as yourself and you realize that there really is no end to that word. Go back and just look at its position here in Romans chapter 13 and how it has such a strategic position and how it is that he's applying it to division that's in first century Roman house churches. How much more does it apply to Christianity in this country today? If we took, all the way back to my introduction, if we took this passage with blood earnestness 
and we asked the Lord before we left here today, how is it that you want me to change so that I will be a better lover of my neighbor? What would he have to do in your life? I've been wrestling with it for weeks. I couldn't wait to get here to share it with you because I'd much rather do it in community. If there's no end to this word, if it is how we share God's justice in the world, what do we do? Verse 10, this is the last verse. Verse 10, it was so important to Paul that he says it again. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He repeats it. In verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, now before, before you allow yourself to make the cognitive move and to say, oh, all I have to do is not harm my neighbor, and that will be loving. It's what the text says, but one has to understand that there are assumptions associated with certain words that Paul doesn't unpack at every turn. When God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of God, he gave them Ten Commandments in the backside of negative. Do not do this, do not do that. But the people of God took that and said, okay, so long as I don't murder my next-door neighbor who's mowing his lawn on a Saturday morning at 6 a.m., then I am displaying love to my neighbor. Paul and Jesus would say to you, good, you're halfway there. Because what is tied up with the negative side of the commandment, it's a coin. The backside of that coin is an affirming of that same principle. So if I'm told not to murder, and Jesus, you know, ups that, right? You call somebody an idiot, you've murdered them. Raka, empty head. You call them a dope, you call them stupid, you call them an idiot, you call them any of those words that just flow off my tongue and yours, then you're guilty in the kingdom, under the kingdom ethic of murder. Think about this in our day and age. Because we think, I don't have a Glock, and so long as I, and even if I did, so long as I don't take it out and I don't shoot my neighbor, I've obeyed the commandments and therefore I'm exhibiting love to that neighbor. Not in the kingdom, because the kingdom requires an affirming of that. So rather than just simply not murdering, what must I do to enhance the life of my neighbor? If murder is the taking of life, what must I do? Same coin, other side. What must I do to give life to my neighbor? This summer, if the good Lord's willing, our Old Testament summer series is going to be on the Ten Commandments. And this is the reason why I chose the Ten Commandments for the summer, because I knew I'd be stopping somewhere around here, where Paul lists four of the back five. And I thought, what a perfect time to talk about the law and to talk about the Ten Commandments and whether or not we are to abide by the Ten Commandments in our lives today. So if I'm not supposed to murder, 
If I'm not supposed to commit adultery, okay, so I did not have sex with my neighbor's wife. So I now love my neighbor. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? No. What I, what I'm, what's, what's put upon me as a result of that commandment and the righteousness of God working for me, I must think of creative ways to enhance the marriage of my next door neighbor. The same with murder. If I simply don't murder somebody, how is it that I could be a life giver to that person? What about stealing? Well, I didn't take his lawnmower, so I love him. No, but the next time he runs out of gas, go buy him some gas for the lawnmower. You're not stealing, you're actually giving. Don't covet. I really don't want his lawnmower anyway, so I'm not coveting the lawnmower, so no, no big deal. When his lawnmower breaks down, give him yours. See, that's the positive side. That's the other side. Rather than, rather than sinfully desiring something that he has, give him yours. Or at least share yours with your neighbor who is in need. Now you're fulfilling the law as the righteousness of Jesus works through you. You see how that works? And we'll talk more about that when we get to the Ten Commandments. Loving one's neighbor is not merely avoiding wrong. Loving your neighbor is actively doing right. It's both and. It's, but it's not merely not doing wrong. It's actually moving forward. That's what love is. It moves forward toward the other. Even when they're prickly and unlike us. So, here's where I leave you. One question. If you're given a credit card, if you're given a credit card by none other than Jesus Christ himself, how is it this week you're going to take concrete steps to max out that card? I started at the very beginning asking you, If you heard or read or saw the scriptures clearly divided and it pierced you to the point where you had to make a change, I'm asking you this morning. If you're in Christ, you have his credit card. Don't leave home without it. What concrete steps, maybe it's just one, will you take this week to draw off that account as a way of showing love to your neighbor? I may be so bold, if the Lord is willing, next week to actually ask you what you did. And you can ask me. So that we don't walk out and say, another not bad sermon from him. but he really asked me to do something. No, I'm not asking you. I'm asking you whether or not you're being asked to change, to go on to maturity by cashing in that credit card of love that Jesus has signed and given to you while today is still called today. 
and we are another day closer to our salvation. Father, we will need your help, and I ask for it right now, because this is, this is, going, to, this is going to pierce my comfort zones. This is, going to, this is going to make a demand of me that's going to wrinkle my schedule, and, and, and I don't often like that. I don't want to be complacent, Father. I'm confessing in, in the hearing of the saints. I don't want to be complacent. I've been given one life. And, and there's no retiring in the Christian life. There's transitions, but there's no retiring to, I've done enough now. It's time for somebody else to do it. We are given one life to spend. To spend. To max out that card with Jesus' name on it. Would you create a movement among us, dear God, where we, where we instinctively love hard people in hard situations and so, in Jesus' words, show the world that we are Christians by the way we love one another. The world has a right, according to Jesus, to look at Christians and say, show me your love. Then I'll know you're different. God help us. God help us. And remind us that we can love because you first loved us. In the name of love incarnate, I pray these things. Amen and amen.